Hello, I'm Greg. Let's have an inappropriate conversation about the content of their character. This is going to feel a bit like a two-part show because I have a couple of different things to talk about, and they only have uh, you know, a slight connection that I'll make in the middle. Essentially, though, I think I have to start with a current event. And as I've said before, this makes me uncomfortable. I don't think current events are my strength. I really appreciate having some time to evaluate things from a wide-ranging set of perspectives. And to that end, if I'm going to speak at all on the current controversy that has followed the assassination attempt against the life of Arizona Congresswoman Gabrielle Giffords and some of the things that have been said about and by Sarah Palin, I think I want to go all the way back to 1999 and offer my perspective from an historical point of view because that's actually where I feel the most comfortable. So let's think a little bit about April and May of 1999. We're in essentially the aftermath of the Clinton impeachment, you know, mess that had gone on earlier that year in the in the winter and spring. And a couple of students had walked into their Columbine High School heavily armed and um, with an intent to murder as many people as possible. And it is in that aftermath that I wrote a column. It didn't get published anywhere because I didn't attempt to get it published anywhere. Part of the reason I didn't attempt to get it published was that I was between jobs. And I just started, actually, at the time that I put the date on this and called this work complete in a brand new position. Having left my job in the record company, working in the corporate office, following some years working in the record store. And what happened in that record store situation was that I was uh, more or less laid off, I suppose, um, in in a merger that I would describe as being something of a takeover, as much a takeover as a merger, when you were experiencing it from the inside, I was given an offer to join the new company and to move several states further away from my hometown. And I chose not to take advantage of that opportunity. And, and I sought other employment a little bit more locally to where I was living at the time. And it was in that transition that I was dealing with a lot of personal anger myself over the fact that we as a company were just about to go public. We were about to essentially use an initial public offering to finance what would be the purchase of our own debt, having gone from being a private company owned, owned by a wealthy family to being a company that was owned by a conglomeration of companies and were really having a hard time struggling to deal not just with the changes in the record industry, but with the burden of the debt that, that we owed back to the company that had bought us. And that initial public offering did not happen because of things in the summertime that collapsed uh, some of the Asian markets and uh, with, with the trouble that was going on in Japan and the inability of Congress to come up with a good fiscal answer and concerns that maybe our markets would be impacted by the unrest in Asia, we delayed our public offering. And rather than being a public company with a lot of stockholders, we ended up getting bought by a rival. So it's in the midst of all that that I sought a little bit of refuge in the job that I had done before it in terms of writing, and writing particularly uh, editorial column-type political speech. And I called this, I Know Who's to Blame for the Colorado Massacre, May 1999. A year ago, our country received an IQ test in the form of the presidential scandal. The question, what are other high crimes and misdemeanors? 
We all know many people who failed that test. Even though no one in the U.S. history has ever been convicted for committing perjury in a deposition for a civil case that was dismissed for lack of damages before going to trial, some people still thought it was a high crime. In fact, I'd bet a lot of people still don't understand the Constitution's Equal Protection Clause well enough that it means you can't really prosecute a political enemy for a crime if no one else would ever be prosecuted for it. Unfortunately, this year, we're getting another national IQ test. If you are even remotely aware of talk shows, you know what it's about. There are evil people in this world. If you believe in biblical inerrancy, then at one time, 50% of the people born onto this planet would grow up to be greedy, selfish killers. The Cain half killed the Abel half years later. This year, a couple or more disturbed and suicidal cold-blooded killers entered a Colorado high school and unleashed a bloodbath. It was an evil, internet-plotted, expensively-mounted, wealthy neighborhood kind of bloodbath as well. What's the IQ test? What's the question for America today? Simply this. Who is to blame? Who is responsible for this tragedy? I'm granting that we cannot fully answer this question yet. Perhaps other students were involved and haven't been caught. Maybe the plotting involved other conspirators. If the weapons were obtained, illegally, with the help of others, then surely the police will follow that path. For now, though, we can expect every political pundit on every talk show to point his finger or her finger at the TV screen and start attaching blame. Conservatives are already blaming the school, the parents, the media, Hollywood, alternative rock music, the internet, and video games. Liberals are already blaming the school, the parents, the National Rifle Association, paramilitary neo-Nazi groups, etc. Students at the school have raised the possibility that the homicidal and suicidal killers were the targets of ridicule from athletes at the school who questioned their sexual orientation, this in one of the most homophobic states in the Union at the time. I went to high school once. I've been there before. Well, I haven't been in that neo-Nazi homicidal maniac place before, but I've felt the kind of peer pressure that can make some of today's teen temptations appealing. By the way, for girls the same age, the parallel is apparently the increasing interest in witchcraft, which might be just another way to create a spooky clique and overpower your enemies. If you show up as the new kid in the middle of junior high school, you know to expect trouble. Add a light complexion, red hair, and good grades, and you've got real trouble. Fitting in doesn't happen overnight, especially at a wealthy school where a great many social decisions have nothing to do with who you are and everything to do with who you know or even what you wear. If you don't have the credentials, you may never get them. You can help a person out in times of need and still be an asshole. You can start dating before you have, even have a car and still be a fag. It's just the nature of the social setting. In that environment, there were days when I went to school, call it the eighth grade, knowing that I'd had enough and was likely to explode if pushed again. Sure enough, sure enough, someone in my science class called my girlfriend a bitch. In a knee-jerk reaction, I hit him and hit him hard. He fell over a table and demolished his physics experiment, while ironically demonstrating the law of gravity in a much more practical way. Did I want to kill him? No. I didn't even want to hurt him. I would have felt terribly responsible if I'd done anything more than give him the black eye he deserved. But I did want to send a message. 
In a frightening way, it appears that these deranged Colorado kids were looking to send a message as well. To get back to the question, who is to blame? Let's make a couple of assumptions so the question can be addressed. Remember, this was written early, within just days or weeks after the event. A lot of the things I'm writing here, we know now more than we did then. Let's say that the guns and bomb-making materials were stolen, so mom and dad didn't supply the firepower. Let's say that the two plotted the entire attack alone, without help from even other guys who were part of their group or part of their gang. Who is to blame then? The answer is obvious. The blame belongs to the two killers. It is going to be difficult to resist the temptation to indulge all of our prejudices. Yes, this is an opportunity to blame the skinheads or the NRA. The religious right has already indulged the overwhelming temptation to blame rock music, video games, moms who work, etc. If our nation is going to pass this year's IQ test, then we need to resist these temptations. Does that mean the blame rests solely with the dead? Legally, perhaps it does. But if we stop there, then we won't be able to explain why kids dealing with this kind of rage 20 years ago simply beat somebody up and then felt bad about it, too. While too many instances are cropping up now that harken back to the San Diego, I don't like Monday's case from, I believe, 1979. Back then, the girl was a shocking exception. Now, these playground massacres seem to be an almost annual occurrence. What was different about 1999 versus 1979? From my own experience, I would say that the answer is responsibility. If I had broken my classmate's jaw, I would have felt terribly responsible. Did he deserve a bloody nose? Yeah, I thought so. For what he called Terry, I I thought I owed him that. But I never felt that he owed me anything. Not even an apology. Since I, I guess I felt I'd already settled the score. Too many people in our society today cannot make that claim. It seems like too many people think somebody owes them something. We have created a national epidemic of blame. If a police officer gets shot, it's Ice-T's fault for angrily rapping about police corruption with his body count banned. If Mrs. Lorena Bobbitt performs surgery on her husband, it's his fault for being a subhuman form of life. If a woman burns herself while driving dangerously with a cup of coffee, it's McDonald's fault for making the water too hot. And to point the finger at myself, if I lose my job, it's the fault of the U.S. Congress for not responding adequately to an international economic crisis. Maybe these psychotic kids were deranged in part by blame. They apparently acted like they were settling some score, violently punishing those who denied them something they were owed blaming athletes and minorities for their unhappiness. The root evil to all this blaming is that it erodes personal responsibility. Who is to blame for this tragedy? The killers. Who is responsible? The killers. How ironic that blaming others and not taking personal responsibility may have played a crucial role in this terrible crime. It's ironic because all of the talking heads both conservative and liberal, are only perpetuating the evil in their zeal to attach more blame and divert responsibility. Make no mistake, the blame game going on here is part of a concerted effort. If only at the subconscious level, the political pundits are jumping at the chance to blame the things they hate, whether it's the National Rifle Association or video games, for anything evil that shocks our social conscience. Well, 
If anyone other than the killers can be denounced for contributing to this terrible crime, it surely must be those who perpetuate this horribly harmful cycle of assigning blame and dodging responsibility. You want to blame somebody other than the killers? (sighs) Fine. Blame the liberals for accusing the NRA. The Brady Bill would not have stopped what happened in Columbine. Blame the conservatives for granting the devil-made-me-do-it power to every game or song or movie they don't like. Hey, while we're at it, does anybody want to blame the president? We should blame ourselves for not stopping this retreat from responsibility in its tracks years ago. That's the essay answer to this year's IQ test. Listen for the blame game over the next several weeks and consider this quiz. When pundits start directing blame to others, in addition to the killers, you will know that these pundits themselves are the ones we should blame. Blame them for fueling the same you-owe-me idiocy that might have facilitated this shameless slaughter. To restate, two or more adolescent males plotted an assault on a Colorado high school and executed a raid that left at least 15 dead and dozens injured. They are to blame for their crime. Starbase 66, the international Star Trek and science fiction podcast. Join our collective at www.simplysyndicated.com or via iTunes, keyword Starbase 66. From this time forward, you will listen to us. So I think when you look at this perspective that I've got, back from the Columbine Massacre in 1999, it would be easy to say that the conservative side of Greg's radical moderate view is winning out and that Greg agrees with Sarah Palin. Well, I agree with Sarah Palin only to this extent. I do not believe that she caused the massacre that has left six dead and others injured in an attempt to assassinate a U.S. congresswoman. I don't believe that anyone, other than the person who committed the crime, can be held legally accountable for the crime. And don't confuse anything that I say from this point forward with a retreat from that point of view. That essay I wrote in 1999 spoke my mind well then, and I stand by it now. However, what was asked of Sarah Palin was not at all unreasonable. And I'd like to walk through that and give us a sense of why there seems to be so much irrational anger toward her and why she's had such a difficult time comprehending it. And it does, at some point, come back to this question of the content of our character. You do not get a free pass with me, and you shouldn't get a free pass with anybody for being conservative or for being Christian. You have to measure up to the character question. And so often Republicans are quick to point out the character is really important. Bill Clinton, in their minds, perhaps quite rightly, didn't measure up to the character standard that they would hold dear. Well, here you go. Was it good character, good judgment, an intelligent form of discourse to have a graphic with crosshairs on specific congressional districts placed on your website? I realize that you can play the same game that everyone who's ever done something wrong does and say, well, you know, somebody else is doing it too. You know, Jim Morrison was arrested in the late 1960s in Miami for indecent exposure. And what was his defense? Well, the actors in the play hair do it too. You know, it, it's not an acceptable argument for me. I didn't vote for McCain and Palin in the previous election. I didn't vote for Obama and uh, Biden either. I voted for Ralph Nader, and I have a hard time imagining that Ralph Nader would have had this kind of graphic up on his website. 
because Ralph Nader did not view corporations as people or citizens. He did not view money as speech. He did not view you know, graphics as arguments. He didn't see the wisdom in sound bites. And that's the kind of dialogue I'm looking for. This hysterical backlash against those people who perhaps hysterically criticized Palin doesn't make any more sense than the arguments that Palin should be arrested and tossed in prison for murder or attempted murder. The bottom line is, no one's calling for a crackdown on free speech by saying we ought to talk to each other more. No one's calling on someone's First Amendment rights to be violated by saying, let's stop screaming each other and have an intelligent dialogue. If me asking someone else to speak intelligently, to speak clearly, to listen to what I and others have to say, and then offer an intelligent reasoned response, perhaps contemporaneously right there on the spot, or perhaps several days later in a taped scripted address, that is not a violation of the whole notion of the way our political process should work. If our political process is viewed by you as functioning at its best through uh, slogans and sound bites and graphics and attack ads, then I'm sorry. Uh, you may not be doing anything illegal, but you're not measuring up to a standard that I think we should stand behind. Shortly in the aftermath, and very quickly in the aftermath of this, of this gunfire, the Palin supporters, maybe um, somebody on her staff, removed the graphic from their website, and the graphic has not reappeared since, to my knowledge. It's an interesting thing that I think I, I need to have an answer for. We've got to address this question because it's not about whether or not it's right to accuse somebody of doing something wrong. And by the way, Sarah Palin, you're a public figure. By any conceivable standard, you've insinuated yourself into, a public, into the public sphere and into the public dialogue. And it's going to be very difficult for you to make a legal claim that anybody has uh, – slandered or attacked or libeled you when you've introduced yourself into the issue. So let's drop all that, drop all that nonsense. From a mass communications law perspective, I'm not sure you've got much of a leg to stand on. Being a former vice presidential candidate who's a host of a couple of TV shows, I mean, you're a public figure, you're a celebrity, deal with it. But as a public figure, and as someone who has run for highest elective office or very high elective office, and as somebody who does speak into issues about questions of character and morality in government, I've got a question for you. If your graphic was so right, or toward it another way, if there was nothing wrong in the graphic on your website, why did you take it down? Why did you take it down? I'm going to suggest that you took it down because you knew there was something wrong about having that particular graphic up at this particular moment. And what did America want to hear? An angry response where you did your best to rhetorically devastate your enemies? No. Here's what the United States of America wanted to hear. I apologize for anybody who misunderstood the graphic that I had on my website. I have pulled the website down because I recognize that it is an incredibly insensitive image to be putting out on the Internet at this particular time and in the midst of this tragedy. If I had the ability to know beforehand what was going to happen, I would have removed it from my website much sooner and perhaps reconsidered whether to use those particular images at all. My heart and my prayers go out to the Giffords family, and I in no way intended to harm or cause distress to them their loved ones, or their supporters. I recognize now the error of this particular piece of judgment, and I've taken every step I can, including apologizing, to correct it. That's what the American people wanted to hear, that you knew it was wrong 
to have that graphic up there, that it did not help in this time of need, and that your decision to pull the graphic was a recognition of the fact that it was insensitive, or at the very least, it was bad luck and bad timing that this particular image was in place at the moment of this tragedy. Why did that not happen? What we're hearing from supporters of Sarah Palin is that that didn't happen because there's nothing wrong with the graphic, and it's wrong to criticize the graphic, and that anyone who has anything negative to say about this needs to understand the history of American politics and the way this has always been handled. And I'm willing to accept that argument. American politics has not always been as nice and clean as we remember it when we look back to the good old days. Remember, there probably weren't any good old days. But here's my challenge. If there's nothing wrong with that graphic, if there's no reason to apologize for the potential hurt or distress it might have caused someone who knew any of these victims personally, put it back up. Put it back on your website now. And why not? Because the entire point behind the graphic was to show that there was a moment here where there was a political opportunity for the Republicans to seize control of more seats in the U.S. Congress. Guess what? There's a question in my mind right now about whether there's a seat in the U.S. Congress which is about to become open, maybe permanently open, maybe temporarily open on an interim basis, and the Republican governor of Arizona may have a decision to make, may have some actions to take based on what doctors say about the recuperation and rehabilitation plan for Congressman Giffords. Is there a better moment for you to put the graphic up about Republicans taking seats away from Democrats in Congress? The only argument I can think of for saying there's nothing wrong with this graphic, it's right, I'm going to defend it, it was a good idea. The only argument I can think of for leaving that graphic off the website at this crucial moment is because you understand what the rest of the country understands, that it's insensitive, that it is rude, and that on some level it is actually wrong for that graphic to be in place at this point in time. A leader would acknowledge that. So even though we face the difficulties of today and tomorrow, I still have a dream. Yes. It is a dream deeply rooted in the American dream. I have a dream that one day yes. this nation will rise up and live out the true meaning of its creed. We hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal. Yes. I have a dream that one day on the red hills of Georgia, the sons of former slaves and the sons of former slave owners will be able to sit down together at the table of brotherhood. I have a dream that one day even the state of Mississippi, a state sweltering with the heat of Injustice, sweltering with the heat of oppression, will be transformed into an oasis of freedom and justice. I have a dream that my four little children will one day live in a nation where they will not be judged by the color of their skin, but by the content of their character. I have a dream today. The content of their character.
Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. during the uh, so-called I Have a Dream speech, calling out that his children, he was hoping, would grow up in a society where decisions would be made about who they are based on who they really are, not based on what they look like, not based on the color of their skin. And it was clearly a notion that he was putting out there not just for his own family but for others, not just for those children who would represent him in a future generation, but a lot of other children who I believe follow the legacy of this particular man, the way he lived his life in this speech, and chose to um, also follow that particular dream, that we should be judging people by the content of their character. Most of the time, it makes sense to speak you know, in and around Martin Luther King Day and on this particular question of racial prejudice about issues of race. But I want to take this in a slightly different direction, partly because I'm already thinking about Colorado because of the connection that I had to make in my mind between what happened in Columbine and what happened uh, this recent weekend in Arizona. But also because I think that there's an interesting application to be made here about the question of the content of character, even into a broader sphere than things like race or gender or religious creed and belief. I think we should take this in the direction of sexual orientation just long enough to explore it a bit. And I want to do it in a couple of ways, talking about the content of character. Let's begin with Colorado, because that's kind of where I started on this particular show. Colorado had an amendment two, which passed in 1991 or thereabouts. And this amendment had the following to say, no protected status based on homosexual, lesbian or bisexual orientation. Neither the state of Colorado, through any of its branches or departments, nor any of its agencies, political subdivisions, municipalities, or school districts, shall enact, adopt, or enforce any statute, regulation, ordinance, or policy, whereby homosexual, lesbian, bisexual orientation, conduct, practices, or relationships shall constitute or otherwise be the basis of, or entitle a person or class of persons to, have or claim any minority status, quota preference, protected status, or claim of discrimination. This section of the Constitution shall be in all respects self-executing. So essentially what this amendment would have done, and for a time at least on paper did do, was repeal any existing laws in any city, county, you know, or state for that matter, including executive orders, school board policies, libraries, what have you, which would have protected persons from discrimination on the basis of their sexual orientation. It was essentially saying it's okay to discriminate against these people. And it would have allowed regulations to be passed and implemented, which would have given specific privileges to heterosexuals over homosexuals. That's essentially what the amendment would have done. And the U.S. Supreme Court ruled six to three against it. And what I want to do quickly is wander through what the, what the practical application of this amendment could have been and what the court's minority would have had to have done to take their argument to its intelligent end. So first, what would it have done? You know, what's the point in passing a law that says states can never protect somebody from being homosexual? Essentially, what it means is that it would be okay for somebody to be fired for being gay. It would be okay for a restaurant to deny um, service, food service or otherwise, even access to the bathroom to somebody for being gay. 
Likewise, uh, hotel rooms. Um, this is, you know, the, the height of the AIDS scare, perhaps in the very late 80s, early 90s. And perhaps the hotel chains thought that uh, HIV being somewhat more likely among uh, gay men than the heterosexual population, that it made sense to try to keep a potentially dangerous virus out of their hotel rooms, whatever the logic might have been there. Essentially, it was about making it possible for businesses to deny services without cities or counties or state laws getting in the way and forcing them to to not take such an approach. I can see someone making the argument that this particular law was entirely hypothetical. That was an exercise of conservative politics to place into law something which one group of people held to be very crucial or important to them and another people held to be a really um, overreaching uh, and, and dangerous maneuver. On the one hand, the law was not going to stop a business, like most of the businesses that I've ever worked for, from having specific business rules prohibiting employees from discriminating against each other or customers based on sexual orientation, among all the other things. But it was certainly put in place to protect businesses who chose to take another route. And I guess my question is, if no restaurant or no hotel or any other business ever felt prejudice against gay and lesbian and bisexual people, there would have been no need for the amendment. The amendment only exists if you are not interested in making a judgment about an individual based on the content of that person's character and instead prefer to make a judgment about an individual based on their sexual practice. And this is where I begin to have questions for the three U.S. Supreme Court justices who dissented in the ruling that overturned this state amendment. Now, I'm not getting into questions of federalism here, I'm not getting into questions to, of judicial activism. I'm going to save that whole concept for another time. But if you just accept for the fact that no one else was going to stand up for customers or employees who found themselves in the position of being perceived to be gay and discriminated against, Colorado had gone as far as they could go, and the U.S. Supreme Court was the, you know, the court of last resort, I guess, for want of a better word. Here's my question. If you run a restaurant in Colorado and you have vowed that you do not intend to serve any food or any meals or provide any service whatsoever to anyone who is in any way homosexual, how do you know? How exactly are you going to exercise your state-granted right? What information have you been given that gives you that kind of power? And that's a question that I find very hard to answer. So it either comes down to the fact that this amendment was reasonable to be struck down because it never could have been actually imposed anyway. The only way for it to be applied would be if businesses actually took the very dangerous step of making assumptions about people. It's rather unlikely that in 1991 in the state of Colorado, home of very uh, conservative Christian organizations, politically active Christian organizations, that you were going to have, you know, 100% certainty that you are going to be discriminating against the right people. So what happens if the dissenting view in this matter, the conservative perspective from the court was correct, and it is okay to discriminate against these people, and a business makes a mistake? What if two brothers who haven't seen each other for almost a decade finally get together in a reunion near a Colorado ski resort and embrace each other for a very long time at the joy of being back in each other's presence, having been separated by parental divorce or some other issue for a long time? long period of time. What happens if the Colorado businessman assumes that this is an indication of these men's homosexuality and not their brotherhood, and that the men are in fact heterosexual and maybe even just as homophobic as the businessman is, and he refuses service on the grounds of them being gay? 
What do you do then? How do you handle that? Seems to me that if the state is interested in protecting the rights of the business from lawsuits, lawsuits against slander and libel, um, for falsely accusing somebody of being something that the person making the accusation is rejecting as an abomination. How do you handle it? Again, either this amendment as written would be completely worthless because you'd be taking your, your own livelihood and stake. You would actually be risking whether or not you could keep your business if you accidentally made a mistake and falsely accused somebody of being gay when they weren't. So you have this law in the books that can never really be applied, even by somebody so homophobic that they're desperately eager to use it. Or the state would have to provide some sort of protection so that the business could impose its discriminating ideals without having to worry about the consequences of getting it wrong. Well, there's only one way, one way around this, really. You could come up with a way of saying, well, if you're homophobic and you're accused of being gay and you're not gay, you can't sue somebody who accuses you of being gay, in which case I think I'd probably just wander all around the state of Colorado, uh, you know, leveling, you know, horrific language like the, the term I quoted in that article so many years ago and seeing uh, what people would do of being accused falsely and being unable to sue. Now, I think probably the only way to do it is if the state of Colorado, in the interest of upholding the integrity of their amendment, somehow forced everyone who lived in the state to declare their sexual preference. And once you've figured out, you know, all the people who were gay because they've declared their sexual preference, you're going to have to identify them in a way that's really public. You have to make sure that when that person walks into a drugstore, when they walk into a department store, that everybody who's working there, particularly the owners of those institutions, know the gay person when they see him so they can make an informed judgment about whether or not to serve that individual because the state has created a law that protects that businessman um, from any discrimination he might want to level against somebody, but he can only really exercise the right if he's sure. So maybe we, we stitch like some sort of a symbol, you know, like the, the symbol that Prince turned his name into for a while, the, the uh, rock performer Prince Rogers Nelson or, or some other sort of sign that you would have to wear on your shirt at all times. Now, I realize I'm violating Godwin's law here by making intentional references to Nazi Germany. But what else do you do? And once you've decided that, okay, now I've got all these people, they're all wearing the sign, and maybe a whole bunch of businessmen do fire them, and maybe other businessmen refuse to hire them, um, and no one will give them hotel rooms to stay in or serve them food or organize their bank mortgage. I mean, ultimately, where do you go here? Whether you intentionally decide to create a slum, round up all the gay people and put them in it, You've taken a step down that path that's going to be awfully hard to undo. Taken to its logical extreme, which I did at the time, because I wanted to make sure people understood how short-sighted I felt the dissenting view was and how unenforceable the amendment itself was, that what the amendment was trying to do could not be accomplished. At some point, you'd probably have to say, listen, we've got all these people round up, and now we're providing some sort of state housing for them. We've got them in some sort of slum because no one wants to employ them and no one has to employ them. And everyone knows who they are because we put a scarlet letter on them. Well, now what do you do? How long would it be before the same people who voted in favor of something like Amendment 2 would say, hang on a second, we passed Amendment 2 because we didn't want to serve these people food and we didn't want to give these people a place to live. And look what we've done. We're not necessarily giving them a very nice place to live. And I'm certain we're not giving them the very best available food. But because they're unemployable and because they're not allowed to mingle with the rest of people in society, We've essentially rounded them up and put them somewhere, and we're paying for them to live. I mean, at least in the previous situation where gay people were staying at your hotel and you didn't really know they were gay, 
They were paying you to stay there. But now as the homophobic hotel owner, you're paying them. You're paying for their food. You're paying for their shelters coming out of your tax dollars. And then I think you got to look yourself in the mirror. If you're Judge Scalia or Thomas or Rehnquist or any of the people who were in favor of Amendment 2 and pushed it forward through as a Colorado law, you got to look yourself in the mirror and say, hang on a second. This isn't at all what I had in mind. Because the next logical step is to say, how do I stop putting those people up in a house? How do I stop feeding them? And you get yourself close to the point where you can declare it's not a genocide if you want to, because you don't think that it's actually a defining personal character trait, that it's just a choice, but you're still rounding people up, isolating them from society, refusing to provide service to them, refusing to provide them the same standard of protection we might provide to the elderly, for example. And at some point, you're going to end up logically forcing those people to flee your state or to become wards of your state. And what do you do? The bottom line is you take these things to what I would describe as their logical extreme, that we've got this amendment for a reason. What are we trying to accomplish? How do we accomplish it? What are the negative consequences of our approach? How do we get around the negative consequences? What are the consequences of our solution to the negative consequences? And at some point you end up in a very bad place because the original decision was not based upon anything responding to the content of the character of the individual. You might as well be burning a cross in front of their house. You're not making a wise judgment and perhaps hiding behind questions of whether what you dislike about them is their behavior or their choice versus who they really are. At the end of the day, you are singling people out and separating people not based on who they are, because even if you dislike certain of their behaviors, I would remind all of my Christian friends that Paul in the book of Romans says all of us fall short of the glory of God, that every single one of us has sinned. And James in the letter from the brother of Christ in the Bible says, even those of us who have committed even one violation of the law, even those who have tripped up even a little bit in one small area, when you violate one aspect of the law, you have violated the law. And if you want to live as though Christ has not come to redeem the fallen, and instead you choose to live as if we are under the yoke and the burden of a law that must be followed, then all of us are guilty. In fact, I would guess that if you take seriously what Jesus Christ said during the Sermon on the Mount, all of us are guilty of serious sexual sins. So is there a better way? I believe there is a better way, and I want to share a personal story from my past, because I'm a heterosexual Christian man. I'm probably about as you know, middle of the road, ordinary as you can get. I've got a very normal and ordinary past, but that doesn't stop me from trying to have as much as possible the broadest perspective I can, because I don't have a lot of other shoes in my closet. I haven't walked in the shoes of a lot of the other people, so I don't presume to judge on their behalf. The bottom line is, what does it mean to make judgments about people based on the content of their character? What it means is that you ignore the prejudices of the world that you're in. You recognize when somebody has an anti-Christian perspective and the things that they're saying are simply based on a religious-based or an anti-religious-based prejudice, and you rise above that. Likewise, you rise above the kind of things that make some of those people so angry at Christianity. There's things that Christians do that are abominable, and we need to recognize that. Hypocrisy is perhaps the number one problem that most of the people that I have good relationships with who are atheists have with the church. 
If the church would do a better job of living as Jesus described, we wouldn't have so many problems and so many conflicts. Here's an example of what I mean. I was working the record store. It wasn't a particularly busy day. You get those, even on a weekend, where there are moments and times in the workday when employees can speak to each other, where you hit those moments where you don't have a lot of customers in the store, maybe any for a, a few minutes. Things are well recovered. Things have been picked up and organized. There's not a real need to do a massive understock or overstock to fill in bins. And in one of those moments, I was speaking with a manager, the trainee that I was training. One of our other employees came up to us and pointed to the cashier at the counter. Let's call him Steve. And at one point, Sean came up to me and said that I needed to know something about Steve. It was really important that I understand that, you know, Steve was, you know, that way. And he went on to use other descriptive terms to essentially imply to me that his opinion was that Steve was homosexual. And yeah, I wasn't naive. I completely understood that what Sean was saying was Steve was homosexual. He had a problem with it. He didn't like it. And therefore, I should do something about it. Well, I wasn't in the mood to have that kind of conversation anyway. Never really am from a personnel perspective, because it ultimately ends with me having to do something that I'm going to have to explain later. And I would assume not to have to deal with a messy personnel conflict. So what I did was I turned to Sean, kind of stopped him mid-sentence, gestured back to Steve, and I said, listen, Sean, you've got to understand something. This is very important. I can't stop employees from dating each other. Yeah, it's not really, the company policy is not clear on this matter. So if you wanted to date another employee, I don't think I'm in a position to, to forbid it, but I want to strongly discourage you from getting in that kind of a relationship with a coworker, because the nature of our business here is that we have most of our activity on Friday nights, Saturdays, and Sundays. And if you're dating somebody that you work with, I've got to schedule you separately. I got to schedule you separately as, as much as I possibly can. And certainly on any shift where I'm not here to work because I can't afford to allow a romantic entanglement between two of my employees interfere with the mission of the store, with our customer service, with anything else. So if you want to date a fellow employee, I'm not going to stand in your way, but I just think it's a really bad move. I don't think I got all the way through that speech. For a while, his jaw dropped once he figured out what I was saying. The implication that I was making that Sean really just wanted to hook up with Steve. Of course, that wasn't at all what he had in mind. And he began to make very angry gestures and protests to the contrary. But before he could say something that would get him into a lot of permanent trouble, where I was going to have no choice but to, to deal with him as a problem employee. And maybe I've got some friends who are going to say, hey, you should have dealt with him as a problem employee. I stopped him and I said, listen, before you say anything else, Sean, it's clear that I must have misunderstood you, but you, you, you got to know this right up front. There's only two possible reasons why you're coming to me with an obsession about whether or not Steve is straight or gay. One of those possibilities is that you are interested romantically in him and all the advice that I've just given you is pretty darn solid. The other possibility is that you have some sort of objection to his sexual orientation and that you intend to do something about it. And if you create a hostile work environment, if you lash out either verbally or physically against somebody based on who you think they are, I will have to terminate your employment. I will have no choice but to avoid violence in the workplace by removing you because of your aggressive behavior. So which one is it? Am I firing you today and letting you go because you're about to create a hostile workplace environment for a coworker who's done nothing to you? Or are you going to take my advice and try not to pursue a romantic relationship with Steve? He looked at me, shook his head, 
acknowledged as frankly a you know a 16 17 year old boy will that he needed to think this through a little bit more we didn't have any other incidents to my knowledge steve wasn't even gay to begin with truth be known and that was the end of that what i did there was i tried to encourage sean in that case we'll call him sean to recognize that he was making a judgment that was not based on anything that was acceptable in the workplace that he was either saying that he was desperately eager to make somebody else's sexuality his business, which I, as an employer, was not going to find acceptable. I might not have been given the leash to do something to stop it, but I wasn't going to enjoy that kind of, you know, two employees dating each other kind of situation. Or he was going to ignore all the good qualities of Steve, his punctuality, his reliability, his friendliness, um, his, his careful attention to detail. He was going to ignore all those things that actually mattered in the workplace and replace them with something which actually didn't matter in the workplace in any way whatsoever. And it's in that way that I tried to call to his attention that he needed to pay attention to the content of Steve's character as a coworker. Who is your coworker? Because if you're not addressing me with a problem about somebody you work with based on their work performance, I don't need to hear it and you don't need to be thinking it. How nice would it be if we had more consistent reflections along these lines? If we were able to say that maybe I shouldn't be putting crosshairs up on my website because that person is a Democrat. Are we making judgments about that person's character or that person's value as a human if we have done nothing more than to devolve them into the sum of what we perceive to be their political beliefs? You see, you have a choice about whether to be a Republican or a Democrat. You have some choice about whether to be a liberal or a conservative. And that doesn't give me the right to gun you down. I think we all agree on that. I think Sarah Palin agrees on that. A good example of the wisdom I'm talking about is our different drummer this week, actor Sidney Poitier. Poitier was born in Miami from uh, Bahamian parents and uh, enjoyed the benefits of dual citizenship. And most of us encountered him for the first time, probably in the 1960s, could be a little bit earlier than that, as an actor, a man who played um, strong, intelligent, mild-mannered, black characters who rose above their situations, whether those be a film set in a school setting or a prison setting, in social and romantic situations. He was a man who personified dignity in every conceivable way and used the craft of acting to call out the importance of us evaluating people based on who they really are and the content of their character and not just the things that you see on the outside. The Defiant Ones was the film for which he was nominated for the Academy Award for Best Actor and won the, the British equivalent for Best Actor. I remember first seeing him not in Lilies of the Field or even The Greatest Story Ever Told, which is really not a good film, to be honest with you. I remember seeing him in A Patch of Blue, and the film A Patch of Blue really, truly resonated with me. That film was a uh, kind of a romantic drama, for want of a better word, a relationship drama, let's call it, um, about a friendship that grew between a black man, played by Sidney Poitier, and a blind white female in her late teens, named uh, Selena, so Gordon and Selena, and how they were able to navigate their relationship, falling in love in racially divided America. Shelley Winters won, I believe, the Best Supporting Actress Award for her role, uh, really exploding that racism onto the screen 
as the young girl's incredibly intolerant guardian. To make people understand what was significant about this film, in 1965, you only have to look into the history of how the film was made and how the film was broadcast. Um, when the film was uh, was proposed, most of the major movie studios wanted nothing to do with it because they didn't see the possibility of the film making money if it couldn't be shown in the American South. Let me say that again. A Patch of Blue was viewed as a film that could not be screened on the, in the American South, and there was legitimate fear that either you wouldn't find an audience at all, or what you would find is an extremely violent audience who, because a black man and a white woman kiss in the movie, it would be completely unacceptable. And uh, before anybody uh, deems to decide that maybe I'm exaggerating or that I have this wrong, let me make it clear. The, scene, the kissing scenes in the film were excised from the film and the original distribution to movie theaters for exhibition in the American South. That it was felt at the time by the studios who made the film that it could be made only under the condition and that they not run the risk of aggravating Southern American filmgoers. I would bet that a lot of us today would be very surprised, even shocked by that fact. And somehow, both as the character, of course, but also as an actor, uh, Pointier managed to navigate through this with a great deal of dignity. He rose above the name-calling and stood his ground with a great deal of confidence, but with also not trying to make bad situations worse. He might be best known in some ways for Guess Who's Coming to Dinner. Guess Who's Coming to Dinner is a film that I haven't seen all the way through, to be honest. And part of the reason that I haven't is that it's always struck me as being a little bit heavy-handed. So I don't know that I, I need to just sit down start to finish and watch it because I've never really succeeded jumping into that film in the middle. But the one that I think um, impressed me the most from Sidney Poitier is In the Heat of the Night, made just a couple years after A Patch of Blue and made the same year as Guest Who's Coming to Dinner. This is a pretty impressive resume, even from just a one-year perspective for an actor. But not only did Poitier do a really good job of portraying these characters, he did so at risks to his career. He was told over time, even by black activists, that he was doing himself and perhaps even the cause a disservice by always playing people who were so darned respectable. And it would be better for his career to avoid the typecasting and perhaps better for the art of filmmaking in the 1970s where a lot of new rules were being sort of written if he would you know, play a pimp, play a drug dealer, play a wife beater, play somebody with those flaws. But I think Poitier really felt that he had a certain responsibility to continue to maintain an image on screen that a lot of people, to their shame, would have said didn't even exist. That a dignified, intelligent, black character was just 100% fiction. And ironically, Poitier himself was living those values both off the screen and on. The other thing I enjoyed about Poitier as an actor is his wisdom. I want to quote from a Slate article published a couple of years ago on the 40th anniversary release of In the Heat of the Night. This was written by uh, Mark Harris, and it gives a sense of not just the courage, but also the wisdom of Poitier. Here we are. When In the Heat of the Night began shooting in 1966, it was in Illinois, not Mississippi. Poitier, worried that he'd be a target, flatly refused to shoot in the South. He had been tailed by a Klansman when he had visited Greensboro, North Carolina with Harry Belafonte, and a cross had recently been burned on the lawn of his wife's home in Pleasantville, New York. He finally agreed to a few days of tense location work in Tennessee, which were cut short when trouble-hunting rednecks drove into the lot of the motel where he was staying. Poitier told director Norman Jewison he was sleeping with a gun under his pillow. 
Though the movie may have seemed to step behind the news to critics in New York, it was undeniably of its moment in much of the rest of the country. Jewison, a proud, bleeding heart whose pictures range from a soldier's story to the hurricane, isn't often thought of as a particularly visual director, so it's heartening to revisit in the heat of the night and discover the elegance and shot-for-shot storytelling skill of its camera work. Great credit belongs to the cinematographer Haskell Wexler, who, working in color for the first time, created a palette of shadows and scrub-parched earth, menacing inky corners, and glowing red lights of danger which did much to define the richly gloomy look of the American films of the following decade. And editor Hal Ashby, an Oscar winner for this movie, helped Jewison streamline his story to the point where there's scarcely a wasted gesture or indulgent moment. At 110 minutes, In the Heat of the Night is a model of concision and one of the shortest Best Picture winners of the last 50 years. That's Mark Harris from Slate Magazine, February 5th, 2008. To me, the revealing thing about that and some of the bonus footage on the In the Heat of the Night DVD release was how Pointier was much more aware and much more capable of, of managing and mitigating the dangers of being a black man staying in a hotel with white crew members and white cast members while shooting a film in the South. We're talking about Tennessee here. It wasn't shot on location in Mississippi and Alabama. And there's very little in this retelling that makes you think that Pointier was wrong to be so concerned about what the consequences might be of shooting the film there. If nothing else, what we can take from this is a sense that there's a great deal of wisdom and strength, along with the acting ability and the style of Sidney Poitier, and that when we're looking at the question of what it means to evaluate and judge people based on their character, and rather than on their outer appearance, or any other of the trappings of wealth and fame, makes uh, Poitier an appropriate different drummer for this particular occasion. Thanks for listening to this inappropriate conversation. If you'd like to put some dialogue into this matter yourself, I can be reached at IC underscore Greg at hotmail.com. And the website at inappropriateconversations.podbean.com has show notes enabled. That's at the Podbean website. Thanks for listening.